This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. We cover health policy issues impacting musculoskeletal care, as well as how our orthopedic surgeon listeners can become advocates for our patients in the profession. I'm your host, Adam Brueggemann, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. Hello, and welcome to the Bone Beat Podcast. We are here today talking with Ala LaRoque, president of Halo MD. Ala is a highly accomplished healthcare executive and president of a company called Halo MD, which is an organization that focuses on out of network revenue cycle management. She is one of the best experts that I have ever spoken with on the topics of what is working and what isn't working with the No Surprises Act. I'm very excited to talk today about what has happened so far and get a glimpse into what might be happening in the future and what changes might be occurring so that we can ensure that physicians get paid for the work that they do. Welcome to the podcast, Ala. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Brueggemann. Excited to be here. We have talked a little bit about surprise medical billing in previous podcasts and 24 I was actually on and talked a little bit about it, but we were just getting ready to have interim rules. And one of our representatives, Representative Swazi and staff were on as well. And we followed that up with some discussion about reimbursement changes and implementation. But I think a lot of things have happened since then. And I wanted to talk about a few of those and then let you tell the audience and listeners about what's going on within our industries. So I wanted to start with some lawsuits that have occurred in Texas. And your group is based out of Texas, correct? That is correct, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happened so far and what those lawsuits are about? In the world of independent dispute resolution, there are a lot of abbreviations. So just to level set what IDR means, it's independent dispute resolution. NSA stands for No Surprises Act. So I'll use those acronyms quite a bit during our discussion. Texas specifically, TMA, Texas Medical Association, has been on the very forefront of paving the way for out-of-network providers to establish a legal form, if you will, and to enact and to make sure that No Surprises Act is actually implemented as Congress intended. And they're paving the way for essentially the entire nation. So to date, there are four lawsuits that TMA has filed. Two of them have gone through entire judicial system and have received a verdict. And both times the verdict has been qualified as a win for TMA. The first two lawsuits were based on dispute around QPA and how HS interpreted QPA as a qualifying factor in arbitration process. QPA, I don't know that I've ever seen QPA until I got involved in understanding this independent dispute resolution. What is the QPA? How is that factor in deciding what's reasonable to pay someone who has billed an insurance company? Well, you hit probably the hottest topic of No Surprises Act discussion period. So QPA as defined qualifying payment amount. It's a median in-network rate, contracted rate for providers that health plans determine and establish in what I would call black box. There's absolutely zero transparency as to how that's calculated. 
As far as providers are concerned, there's no validation that the calculation methodology as stipulated is being followed. And frankly, being on the forefront of actually participating in the process of arbitration, we're seeing thousands and thousands of examples. And when I say thousands, I really mean that of basically insufficient or different QPAs for exact same procedure type, same CPT, same specialty of the provider, even in the same geozip from the same pair. So the calculation is not always accurate and it deviates from claim to claim, pair to pair, and deviates within the same pair realm as well. Another thing that I want to say that really feels unfair to put QPA as the benchmark into this entire kind of fair and reasonable establishment of payment for out-of-network providers is the fact that a health plan only has to have three total providers that have agreed to take that contracted rate in the entire specialty. So if you have 10,000 providers who have opted out or did not accept a certain contracted rate and the health plan was able to persuade three providers to accept that rate, that becomes the benchmark for national statistic. That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't. So I'm going to back up a little bit. And it's interesting, we're talking about these lawsuits, but you touched on this a little bit. The lawsuits were necessary because what you're saying is that our Congress passed a law and then other people enacted this law. And those other people were Health and Human Services or HHS. And what happened is there's a disagreement between the Texas Medical Association and other physician groups and the federal government in how that was implemented. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened. So congressional intent allowed arbitrators, facilitators, the legal professionals who are involved in the process of IDR to and mandated that they benchmark fair and reasonable payment to a certain number of factors. And such factors included complexity of the case, specialty and training and certification of the provider, QPA being one of the factors, but not a predominant factor. And there are some other factors that were to be considered equally. And I wanna emphasize the word equally. When HHS interpreted the law, they made QPA the dominant benchmark, which almost eliminated, or not almost, but essentially eliminated the other factors from consideration by the legal professionals. And that's what created a lawsuit. So what you were saying is Congress put this together, tried to make it fair, tried not to put the thumb on the scale towards either physicians or the insurance companies. And what ended up happening, though, was Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or more accurately, Health and Human Services, when they implemented it, added wording that said that one specific factor became the one that the arbitrator had to select from unless there was some other compelling reason to select another number. And on top of that, at least according to the Texas Medical Association and appears to be agreed on in court, that is an opaque number that is mostly determined and or set by insurance providers, but not 
really something that physicians have any control over, therefore tipping the scales towards the insurance companies in these negotiations with arbitration. Absolutely. And I think the impact of that, Dr. Brueggemann, is twofold. One is the fact that QPA, which is really an unfair benchmark, if you will, was deemed as a dominant benchmark in the process. And then based on Avalier opinion that I would love the audience to research and read very carefully and understand, but based on Avalier opinion that came out, and it was a survey research that was done, contracted rates for specialties are not accurately reflected in the contracted rates for main specialties. And what I'm trying to say is if you take a primary care group that contracts for, let's say, a health plan, let's say it's United, they throw the book at them and say, here are all of the contracted rates. The primary care group is only going to negotiate and get premium rates for the CPT codes, and that's how medical procedures are basically built out through CPT codes, that they actually use in their practice. For the rest of the CPT codes that were thrown in or added to the contract, primary care physician is not going to pay any notice to or negotiate because they don't need those CPT codes, but yet it becomes part of the contracted rate. So when an actual specialist comes along that truly uses that CPT code that was contracted by a primary care group, which is the largest population of physicians, and was not truly negotiated, they could have offered that primary care group assent to do a certain medical procedure and primary care group would not care. That affects the actual CPT contracted rate for specialty that actually uses those CPT codes to get fair reimbursement. So the whole scale is tipped unfavorably towards providers. The contracted rate is not the right measuring spoon in this equation. And frankly, in my opinion, should not be a benchmark for any type of arbitration. I think I've heard that referred to as ghost rates. And I've seen those in my own contracts where I will look at the appendix that deals with how much we're going to agree to for certain codes or a certain grouping of codes. And I've asked my administrators, hey, it says over here, rates for anesthesia. Why are they giving us anesthesia rates? I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I don't really know what we should be charging for anesthesia or rates for other treatments or procedures that I don't perform. Why are these on my fee schedule as an orthopedic surgeon? And I think what you're saying is that when I agree to some rate for anesthesia that's really not relevant to me in my practice, that rate ultimately becomes part of the calculation for the QPA. And when the QPA becomes the de facto required number that the arbitrator has to choose from, that may not actually reflect what the average anesthesiologist or orthopedic surgeon would typically accept for those types of work or treatments or procedures. You're absolutely right, because by definition, methodology of calculating QPA is taking all the contracted rates locked in to 2019 
There's consumer index that gets applied to it every year for inflation to calculate certain increases or decreases. But overall, it's a locked-in rate for 2019 for all the contracted rates, regardless whether it was contracted to a provider that uses that CPT code or not. And then the medium rate is established. That is absolutely not fair because I, as a primary care physician, am not going to negotiate or care what anesthesia CPT code is contracted at in my contract. I only care about my specific 10 CPT codes that I'm going to bill out on a daily basis. And that makes complete sense because most practices are not large practices. They're small practices. They're going to probably just sign a contract without even reviewing maybe some of those numbers or having an outside group review them and for sure will not pay much attention to codes that they would never use. If they're a sports medicine doctor, they might look at what an ACL reconstruction pays and maybe a couple other procedures, but probably not pay much attention to even what a spine procedure might pay because that won't be part of their practice. So that, I think, was the third lawsuit within the TMA. And then we've got a fourth one. There are significant fees that continue to increase, it appears, and those may become cost prohibitive and may discourage physicians from filing for arbitration due to those costs. Absolutely. And to address the fourth lawsuit that TMA filed, the rate increase by CMS specifically for administrative fees went from somewhat affordable, even back in the day, we felt it was a little high, $50 for just to submit a case to IDR to $350 overnight. And this is on the heels of them saying that we are not going to increase this fee, a 600% hike in fees for just administrative fee. In addition to that, what NSA has done, they have yet again, in my opinion, have misinterpreted the intent of Congress as to how to batch these claims. So there are batching requirements that have been put in place, but initially interpretation was, it was viewed on a claim level. The interpretation that came down from HHS about a year into being performing under NSA and frankly failing under NSA is that batching has to be done on a CPT level. In addition to that, they added yet one more filter to batching, which makes it almost impossible to batch, especially on ERISA plans, self-funded plans by employers, is a specific group number. So you, Dr. Brueggemann, as a provider, how many patients do you think you're going to see from, name a medium-sized employer? Use an example, medium-sized employer. How many of those patients are you going to see in a month? Yeah, very few. Probably one, maybe two, if you're lucky, from the same exact employer with the same employer group number, you can only batch individual CPTs for that specific group. So that means you have a batch of two going out for a grand price of $350 for admin fee from CMS, as well as anywhere from $370 up to $900 fee from IDRE which is independent dispute resolution entity, the actual arbitrators. So when you add that up and you've got two CPT codes and the value of those codes, even bill charges could be well under 250 a piece, it's counter prohibitive, it's cost prohibitive. You're going to basically waive 
and risk assess that submission to IDR. And you're simply going to take a low payment, which is not fair because the fees outweigh the cost and the reward, the potential reward. I want to catch on a handful of these things that are just not working. And one of those is the batching issues you mentioned. But from an implementation standpoint, the other thing that just really bothers me is that physicians are winning frequently at a very high rate in these arbitration disputes. And after they win, they're sitting around and waiting and waiting, but the check's not coming in the mail. So there is this significant problem where payouts are not occurring on time and there doesn't appear to be any solution to that problem? So NSA could learn a lot from the way that TDI, Texas Department of Insurance, implemented their state-level arbitration. What NSA lacks on a big level is enforcement. It lacks penalties. It lacks responsiveness from CMS when a legally binding award is issued by an arbitrator. These entities employ ex-judges, current judges, attorneys, mediators. This is our legal professional community that is deciding this is what a provider should get paid for the specific service, providing a specific geozip for the specific complex surgery or procedure. And they're not enforcing payments at all. There's no stick whatsoever. Now you go to TDI and you look at how that's enforced. First of all, the portal itself is built to help providers and health plans to have a really defined workflow in the IDR process. There are automated emails through every status of IDR process. You know exactly when you submit a claim, you get verification. You know when you submit something to arbitrator. You know when the arbitrator submits their report. You know when the payment is made. Every single action is tracked. And if the health plan or provider are not being compliant to the statutory rates or statutory rules, you get an email saying, hey, you didn't post this. Your due date was yesterday. Post this immediately. And then there's an enforcement body that if you don't get a payment for whatever reason, TDI has phenomenal response rate on their complaints and they get involved. And it's not one-sided. If the provider is wrong, Provider knows they're wrong. If the health plan has done something wrong, they know they're wrong. They're just and they're fair. But there is a level of accountability that's been put in place that does not exist under NSA at all. And providers are submitting complaints on a daily basis. They are pleading. Because think about the financial aspect of this exercise. Provider takes a claim performs a procedure, so there is a cost outlay there, right? Perhaps they have staff, their PA, or whatever it is, there's cost to doing this procedure. They receive a payment from the health plan. That payment is below cost of care, as most payments in today's out-of-network world are. When they receive this payment, they now have an opportunity to perhaps take it to IDR. That health provider has to write a check for NSA in the amount of potentially $1,000 to be able to process two or three CPTs into a batch. Provider says, I'm gonna take a chance. I do feel that I should get paid more for this particular claim. So they write a check out of pocket. They submit, they go through the process. The process is costly, time consuming. 
They win that award. 70% of awards are being won by providers in the process. And then they never get a payment. For months, we have payments that have lapsed since 2022. So for CMS not to have strict enforcement penalties, some type of a stick to make sure that health plan actually pay on these legally binding awards is an absolute must. I can't agree more. And you mentioned specifically arbitrators. Is there a process by which these arbitrators are selected? I know within what we do as physicians, we typically have to disclose and we have ethics regarding who we work for and what we've done in the past. Is there any process by which these arbitrators are being selected or is it just, hey, I threw my hat in the ring and I may be very favorable towards physicians or my past work may put me more favorable towards insurance companies, but is there any process by which they're ensuring that these arbitrators are truly not biased or thinking of this from a middle ground to try and award the correct amount? There is a claim to the fact that this process occurs. It's outlined as to how the process occurs. Providers have no insight into whether it's being performed or not. So the assumption is that arbitraries that have been chosen, I believe there are 13 IDREs that the government has chosen or awarded the contract to do IDR. On state level, there are hundreds of arbitrators. I think Texas alone has something like 160 that have been approved to do the process. So what the vetting process is, I could not answer that question. I know that from a statute interpretation, very much their benchmarks and their guidelines and there's conflict checks and so on and so forth that are supposed to be performed. And if there's a conflict of interest that gets discovered, I do believe, for instance, in Texas or even in New York, New Jersey, they do get removed. So we have seen some arbitrators being removed from the process. An assumption is there was some type of a conflict or something that was discovered that made that particular arbitrator not suitable to do arbitration. Perhaps there was a bias discovered or whatnot. Interestingly enough, when I look at remaining arbitrators, a lot of times when you look through their bio and you have an arbitrator that gets signed up to establish fair and reasonable payment for an out-of-network provider, and their core business is to defend insurance companies in workers' comp litigation. To me, that's a little bit questionable because you are representing payers in your day-to-day. You deal in the capitated world of workers' comp. So naturally, you live in a world of Medicare rates, perhaps, and yet you are arbitrating what is fair and reasonable for out-of-network providers. So there's a disconnect there, and I don't know how the process should improve. There should be some more transparency into how these arbitrators get chosen, for sure. And on the national level, on federal level, why just 13? They're not able to process the volume. As we all know, the volume was anticipated to be in like the 40,000 range for a year. And it just, they blew through that in the first three months. So I think CMS, HHS, and frankly, the Congress did not anticipate how big of a pain point out-of-network reimbursement is and how many providers were going to actually lean on the system to try to get fair and reasonable reimbursement for their procedures. Yeah, there was just a hearing where several congressional members challenged 
Secretary Becerra stating, hey, we knew what the numbers were in Texas. We knew what the numbers were in New York. We had data to tell us that at a state level, we well exceeded the number that we were going to have from a federal standpoint. We certainly would expect that the federal numbers are bigger than the state numbers and questioned why that wasn't brought in. And I think that's a very fair question as to if we knew those numbers, why did we not prepare at the federal level? One other thing I wanted to clarify, because people may not fully understand it, you've talked a little bit about state and federal. Can you explain a little bit about if I'm in practice Am I seeing patients who would both qualify for sometimes a state process and sometimes a federal process? And what's the difference between what the state laws, if I have a state law, are providing information or oversight to and those laws apply versus when the No Surprises Act applies? For starters, there are 21 states that have a bifurcated process. And what that means is that in those 21 states, they offer both state-level arbitration and they offer NSA, No Surprise Act, federal arbitration. How the commercial volume gets divided is you basically take your entire commercial book of business and you look and you divide it up into fully funded plans. They fall under jurisdiction of departments of insurance on state level. And then you take the other book of business and that is your self-funded plans that fall under ERISA and they go to CMS under HHS's guidance. So generally, you will have 70% of your commercial volume fall to NSA if you're in a bifurcated state, and then 30% approximately will fall under fully insured plans. So that's how the volume gets divided. If you are in any of the other states that do not have a bifurcated process, then all of your claims, fully funded and ERISA plans on the commercial level, will go to NSA. You do not have an opportunity to go to state. To complicate the process just a little bit more, in certain states that have a bifurcated process, ERISA plans have an option to opt into the state-level arbitration. And there are websites available where you can actually check to see which ERISA plans, which employers decided to opt into state-level arbitration instead of being under the umbrella of NSA. So at a high level, if a patient is receiving their insurance from an employer, more likely they're going to fall underneath the No Surprises Act. If they have insurance that they obtained via the exchange online, formerly known or sometimes known as Obamacare plans, or if they are a state employee or obtain their insurance through some sort of state employment, then those are going to typically fall underneath, if you have one, a state law. Is that fair? That is correct. It sounds like we're still in a process where we can't quite figure out where this is going to end. Health and Human Services is still involved in at least two lawsuits with the Texas Medical Association. There is still some discussion about other topics that have not been fully finalized or discussed. And so we are still in the middle of trying to understand how to implement this now several years into the process. 
the good news is that things are moving slowly into the right direction, at least from the perspective of physicians. And the good news is that we have people willing to advocate on our behalf, such as the Texas Medical Association, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and other organizations who continue to communicate the concerns of physician groups. We will continue to update our listeners and our group on what's going on through our various publications. Ola, do you have anything, last minute statements, anything we missed, anything you'd like to discuss or help inform? I do feel that the payment will come eventually. There's going to be enforcement, has to be, because this is legally binding lane. So I think I just recently saw an article that there's a $500 million ask to implement enforcement under NSA, and that's a great sign. If you're engaged in IDR, if you're an out-of-network provider receiving capitated below fair and reasonable rates, when you engage in the process, whether you're doing state or you're doing your federal level arbitration, make sure that one, you do not kind of get cold feet, if you will, when your case gets marked ineligible. We have seen time and time again where health plans actually deeming eligible claims as ineligible in different portals and different processes. And we've even gone through an exercise of putting claims, the same claim into two different jurisdictions to basically show that both jurisdictions denied a claim for eligibility. No claim is homeless. An out-of-network claim that was paid below fair and reasonable, if it meets all the other criteria, has to be basically adjudicated and go through and have an opportunity in one process or the other. So fight for eligibility. There are a lot of different opportunities to improve in that lane, but look at your EOB, look at the insurance card, figure out where that claim goes and rebuttal ineligible reasons. That's number one, because we're seeing a lot of providers who are trying to do this on their own, where they just simply give up. They get ineligible reason determination. That claim is actually eligible and they simply do not pursue it because they don't have the time, kind of the energy, or maybe the know-how to really fight for that one claim because it's down on claim by claim level to push it through the system. But that's number one, is get it in the system. And then when you work through the workflow, make sure that the timelines are followed. That's probably another inequality that exists, not probably, but inequality that exists in the process is the fact that providers are being held down to, you cannot be an hour late on your submission, literally by an hour. Yet IDR entities are failing to award determinations in the time frame that statute demands that it does. They're months and months behind. There's no penalty. Health plans are not paying IDR fees. So a lot of times an IDR entity will actually issue determination but they will not release that determination because they haven't collected their money from the health plan. The provider paid, determination has been issued, but they will not release it. They hold on to it until the health plan pays. There's no enforcement to make the health plan pays. They're never going to pay. So that's why the providers are not getting their determinations. And yet provider is already out $1,000 or so waiting for this award to come in. So the scale is so heavily tipped in favor of the health plan due to lack of enforcement, that it is making the process basically unscalable and 
absolutely unfavorable to providers. And that needs to change. I think that's a great summary. The thumb has been put on the scale in favor of insurance companies based on the implementation and rules set forth by Health and Human Services. And we are very thankful for the various organizations for your work that you do every day in your company to ensure that physicians get paid a fair and reasonable amount for the work that they provide. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Please follow Advocacy Now, follow this podcast, follow other communications from our Office of Government Relations as we continue to update you on the changes that are happening from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as they continue to evaluate and update the federal IDR process and give further guidance to our physicians and practices as to how they will implement this law. Thank you again, and we look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak to everyone today. This is a passionate topic, and if we can provide any value whatsoever, always happy to help. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. If you like what you heard today, please consider offering a rating or review and sharing the podcast with your colleagues. You can learn more information about this topic and other AAOS advocacy efforts by visiting aaos.org forward slash the bonebeat advocacy. Mm-hmm.